The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Open your Bibles uh, to Matthew chapter 26. And basically, uh, we're going to look at uh, the first 13 verses here, and it's a story. We're going to end with a, a, a great story about a woman and her extravagant love. That's the title of the message is Extravagant Love. And, you know, as Jesus pivots now and makes a turn toward uh, going to the cross, literally, um, this woman, her heart is in love with Jesus and she believes in him. And we're going to talk about her in the last half of the message. But her example is so stunning that Jesus stops and all those who are in that house points to her and says, what this woman just did and her demonstration of pure worship will be a story that will be told around the world for the rest of time until I come. It's a very moving, powerful story. And by the way, uh, we're going to end the service uh, by kind of following her example. I'm going to have you all stand up, and there's a very simple new song that we just learned on Wednesday night that we're going to sing. We're going to go and worship the Lord. So, amen? Okay, so beginning in verses 1 and 2, Matthew 26, it says, Now it came to pass... When Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So Jesus makes a pivot. He's been talking uh, for the last two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25. If you've been here the last couple of months probably or so, we've been kind of going verse by verse, story by story illustration by illustration, Jesus was talking about the end of the world. He's trying to prepare the disciples. Look, I'm going to heaven now. I'm going to ascend to heaven, and I'm going to be praying there, interceding for you, and the church is going to be growing for quite a season. But then the world's going to look like this when I return, and I want you to know about it. I want you to record it. I want you to write it down, because I want that generation to be awake and to be prepared. And if you know me at all, you know that I believe, and I'm not alone, we're living in those days. We are living in the days where these things are literally coming to pass. But now, we're going to pivot. Jesus uh, now says, okay, I'm not talking anymore about the last days. I'm talking about where I'm headed, and this is the reason for which I came. I have come to die on the cross at Passover. Now, this is not a sad ending because the cross is not the end of the story. Because he always said that when I die on the cross, I will be buried, and on the third day, I will rise from the dead. Look, that's where we're heading. You know, they were headed right there, Matthew 26, they're heading to Passover. They're heading to the crucifixion and the third day to the resurrection. Well, guess what? We're here in March, and we're headed very, in a few weeks, to Good Friday and to Easter Sunday, and around the world, the gospel will be shared. And I am telling you, the world is ripe for a great harvest of souls. There's going to be a lot of people coming into the kingdom of heaven in this spring season. Amen? So as Jesus pivots, uh, he is basically saying, this, this is why I came. And now Hebrew, in Hebrew, the word Passover means to spring or to jump over. So um, 
That, you know, where did it come from? It comes from uh, the Old Testament. Anyway, let me pick this up. This little card dropped, and it's bugging me. But it says something extra to show you God's love for Maranatha. Anyway, okay, so. So with Passover, uh, you know, 3,500 years ago, again, the story of Moses, the Exodus is kind of the seminal story in the Old Testament of God's delivering power. God was, you know, he delivered Israel. Now, you know, they, they had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. It's really difficult probably for us to really wrap our minds around what it was like at the end of those 400 years to be the generation that your parents were slaves, your grandparents were born as slaves, you're born as a slave. If you're now a young family and you got kids, they're born into slavery. And that gets into you, it gets baked into you as your identity. We are slaves of Pharaoh and of Egypt. And then God takes a man named Moses who's out in the wilderness. He's run away from his upbringing because he had been especially raised in the court of Pharaoh. But he now has run off to the wilderness and he sees a strange sight, a bush that's on fire, but it never burns, it never is consumed. And so he goes, that's a strange sight. I'll turn aside and take a look at it. And when he gets there, a voice speaks out of the burning bush. How many, how many of you that would freak you out? Surely it did Moses. And the voice said, take your shoes off you're standing on holy ground. The God of your father, Abraham, is talking to you. I've called you. And he says, see that rod? Go over there, Moses, and pick it up and watch what I can do. He picks up this rod like a staff, like a shepherd, and the supernatural power and presence of God begins to be manifest. And then God says to Moses, now take that rod in your hand and you say to, Mo or say to Pharaoh what I tell you to say, your mouth will be my mouth. Your mouth shall be as God to Pharaoh. I want you to tell him, let my people go, right? He's, and then he tells him, and he's not going to let you go. But that's okay, because then I'm going to start working on Pharaoh. I'm going to give him a plague. Okay, hello, I want you to listen to this. A plague is a sign, not just from the past, but even for the present, that God is grabbing the attention of the world. He is getting the attention of the Egyptians, but he also had the attention of the Hebrews, because the first three plagues were suffered by the Egyptians as well as the Hebrews. God had their undivided attention. How many would agree God's really grabbing the attention of the whole world right now? He wants everybody to be looking up. And with the plague, so it came and let my people go. No, I'm not. And God told Pharaoh, it's not going to let you go. So he goes, so after the first plague, it'll go and it'll spend itself. And he'll say, yeah, I'm going to let you go. Then he'll change his mind. And so then I'm going to ratchet up to number two. Plague two goes to a new level. And so again, he will, okay, we're going to let you go. We're not going to let you go. And it'll go to plague three and then four. And each plague gets more severe. It gets worse. The pain becomes greater. It is felt more. Finally, you're at plague nine, nine times. And I want you to think of this, these plagues, and you're thinking, wow, where's God? What is he thinking in all this? Is he just being mean? No. He, he could have judged Egypt after the first one but he gave them 10 chances to repent. Every plague is an opportunity to say, wow, uh, you know, 
if I stop hitting my head against the wall, it might feel better. You know, you can change your mind. That's what repentance is. Let's go in a new direction. So nine times, and then God finally says to Moses, okay, now, got one more. We're going from nine to ten, and this is the deal. This is going to make the deal. It's going to happen, and he's going to have, I will force Pharaoh's hand to let you go. In fact, I want you to tell the children of Israel, here's what they need to do. They need to go get a lamb for every family and for every house. And it has to, they have to search all of the flocks that you oversee. And they have to pick a lamb for their whole house. And that lamb has to have not one spot, not one blemish. It has to be without defect, pure and clean. And then I want you to sacrifice that lamb for that whole house. And then you take the blood of this substitute, sacrificed, innocent, pure lamb. You put its blood on the doorposts of your, the front doorposts of your house and on the lintel beam above it. Because this night, Passover night, I'm going to send my angel from heaven called the angel of death. And he will take the life of every firstborn son in the family and every home. But wherever he sees blood of an innocent lamb on the door, he will jump over it or he will pass over it. And then tell the people, don't even change your, have your clothes on, don't get into your little, you know, PJs or anything, because the following morning, Pharaoh's going to let you go. And when he gives you the word, you go out to the promised land that I will show you. Now, here's the beautiful thing in that. So they all do that. And that becomes now the annual celebration of Passover, which by the time of Jesus, this Passover coming that's two days away, they've been rehearsing 1,500 times, 1,500 years. In a way, God was saying, I don't want you to forget where you came from. Now, the analogy of all this in Exodus is that you and I also who are saved by the grace of God, by the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts of our heart, uh, is, is because God has been gracious to us. He deli- we were slaves to sin, slaves to our flesh, slaves to the devil. And we have been radically redeemed, radically delivered, radically saved. Don't ever forget, we were in bondage and have been set free. Amen? It's a beautiful thing. But here's the other cool thing about it. Because God, as he gave the instructions to Moses and then to about two million of the Jewish people, from the elderly down to the little babies and all the parents in between, he also said, give that same word to the Egyptians. Because he said, any Egyptian house that takes a lamb and slays it and then puts its blood on the doorposts and the lintel beam even of an Egyptian home, the angel will pass over that house as well and their son will be spared. The Bible tells us that there were many Egyptians. Now look, they'd, they'd already had nine times to learn that whatever that guy Moses said, it's coming. It's coming down. We believe that God. He's bigger than all our gods. He's more powerful. He overrules our gods. So whatever we, you hear the Jews say and whatever you find them doing, we're doing it too. So there were many Egyptian homes that sacrificed lambs, put the blood on the doorpost of lentil beam, and the Bible says the following morning when Israel was released because Pharaoh did not believe. He stubbornly, he didn't just double down, he ten-timed down, no. So he had no blood on his palace. And that night, his beloved firstborn son, was taken by the angel of death. And his heart broke. He said, go, leave, get out. 
And then after he let him go, then he chased him, and they, they still pursued, and they got under the judgment of God as well. But the beautiful thing is, the Bible says, when the two million-plus Jewish people left Egypt and now were delivered to go on their way to the promised land, they left with a vast, mixed multitude. Let me interpret that. There were many Egyptians who said, we're leaving our homes, our culture, and our gods in the past. We're following these to whatever promised land they are going. So, may I say, I believe that Exodus is a pattern. It is a prophetic type that you can overlay on the book of Revelation. The things that will be happening, that we are beginning to see and witness, and it's shaking and grabbing the attention of the world. But God is going to use this for the greatest harvest in human history. More souls are going to come into the kingdom. In fact, this, this very week, I haven't shared this at any of the services, this week I had two young Iranian girls who just a few years ago had been raised in a Muslim home, and then they, without no Christians, no church, no Bibles, but through dreams and through visions, Jesus began to reveal himself to them just individually. Then they found each other. And then like house churches or whatever. And then eventually, now they've made their way here. They were thrown in prison. And they said, you can't do that. And they charged them with blasphemy. And the punishment for blasphemy is these two young girls were to be hanged. But God delivered them. And God set them free. And now they're here. And they said, Pastor Ray, two of them were in my office this week saying, Pastor Ray, what happened to us is happening to thousands upon thousands of Iranians in modern Persia right now. God is on the move. So God is very, very gracious. Now let's read the next uh, couple of verses, beginning in verse 3. It says, Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas, he was the high priest, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, and the feast being Passover, lest there be an uproar among the people. I want you to notice they assembled and they plotted uh, and they wanted to trick and capture Jesus and kill him and destroy his, because there was a messianic movement that Jesus had been generating among the people. There were many that were believing in Jesus, all those who had been touched and healed and heard his stories and even coming to Jerusalem. But when they got together, by the way, at Caiaphas' house, the high priest's house, they, they were conspiring together to put Jesus to death. And the one conclusion they came up with is, whatever you do, whatever we do, we cannot crucify him during Passover. And yet, that is exactly what happened. The very thing that they did not want to do is the exact thing that happened, that Jesus was crucified on the feast of Passover. In fact, he died at three o'clock in the afternoon, exactly the same hour the lambs were slain for the Passover there in Jerusalem. At the very same hour, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit, three, three o'clock in the afternoon, right as the lambs were being sacrificed. Literally, he, he was putting those things together. Because all of the lambs who had been sacrificed for 1,500 years, listen, 
Not one of those lambs' blood had ever put away the sin of anybody. It had never paid for sin. In fact, the Bible tells us that the blood of lambs and goats cannot pay for sin. All it did was cover over. God said, okay, I won't. I'll cover over your sins. I'll forgive you for now as you have faith toward the future. But ultimately, there will come the lamb, the substitute, the pure, the holy one. As John the Baptist pointed out at Jesus and said, behold, that man is the lamb of God that will pay for and take the sins of the whole world. Jesus came. And it had to happen on Passover. Now, here, uh, I'm going to read Psalm 31, verse 13. The Psalms prophesy about what it would be like and how Jesus would be uh, plotted against. Let's read Psalm 31, verse 13 out loud. For I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side. While they take counsel together against me, they scheme to take away my life. This was written hundreds of years before Jesus, and yet it's literally fulfilled during the week of Passover and when Jesus goes there to the cross. And so they, they were worried. Here's what they were worried about, this Messianic movement and Jesus, and now it's Passover. Every Jew in not only Israel, but outside the borders of Israel, had to be in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. So the city of Jerusalem swelled in its numbers five times as big as normal. They were afraid this, that if we do something about Jesus on Passover, during Passover, it could create a spark that could create an explosion and bring the whole Roman Empire down upon our heads. That's what they were afraid of, and that's what they were worried about. So they met at Caiaphas' house. But I want you to know this, because we read sometimes the gospel, and it says, you know, the Jews conspired, and the Jews plotted, etc. But this group of Caiaphas and the chief priests and the elders was a very small group numerically. There were many others who believed in Jesus and were hoping that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messiah, and the disciples themselves were Jews who believed in Jesus. So when you read, and the Jews plotted against him, it doesn't mean all Jews. It means some Jews. And just as there were then those, so it was an internal squabble in the family. Some Jews said, no, he's the Messiah. Some said he's not the Messiah. Even to this day, the same thing is true. Not all Jews today reject Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, today, there are tens of thousands of Jews, some who live in Israel, those who live outside of Israel, and it's growing. There's a website, you can watch the videos, it's called I Met Messiah. Jews, religious background, secular background, from America, from Europe, uh, from wherever they may be, saying, I have found and I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So God is doing great and mighty things among us. But then we read this story, and I want to close with this story this morning. As they're making this plot, it's setting the whole scene for what is about to happen at the cross. But then this story happens. This is what I want to close with today. Verse 6. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Now, nothing is told us of Simon the leper. He just appears here, um, and Jesus is at this guy's house. Now, I, I am imagining, and the commentators say that having Jesus at his house means he no longer had leprosy, but because everybody growing up with him had known him, it kind of became his nickname, Simon the leper. Yeah, but God healed by Jesus, I know, but we still call him Simon the leper. So anyway, they're at his house. 
And a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. Now, now this, this was an open public display that she does in front of men. It was a very, even for the times, a very bold action. But when his disciples, now, now here think of Peter, James, and John, all the disciples. When his disciples saw it, they were indignant, which means they were upset, saying, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has just done will also be held, told as a memorial of her. An example of extravagant love. Now, here it just says it was a flask, which would have been a big, pretty good-sized flask with a little thin neck on the top of it. Another gospel, I think it's the Gospel of John, tells us what it was worth. It was worth about 300 denarii. A denarii was basically, at that time, a day's wage. So 300 denarii means the value of this flask of perfume was about one year's salary. Why did perfume cost so much? Because you had to go to distant lands, probably even cross rivers and continents, so the travel and the expense, and it was rare, and by the time it comes back, and you pay for, you know, a year's salary, and you might use this, a family might have a flask like that, and use it, you know, sparingly, a, a little dab now and again, for a lifetime. It was a lifetime treasure, and again, part of the value in those days, they didn't have, you know, they didn't take daily showers, they walk in dusty trails, or ride with animals, and when you have guests finally arrive at your home, that's why they wash their feet and they put some, some oil or fragrance on them, you know what I'm saying, to help uh, make them smell a little better as they come in. It's a nice thing to do to your guests. But usually you would take out the precious thing, dip it over to the little thin neck, get a little dab on your finger, and you know, kind of spruce them up just a little bit. This woman takes that thing, comes over to the table, she breaks off the thin little neck, and she takes the whole thing on top of Jesus' head and pours all the fragrance. Now, you know what a little bit can smell like? When you, when you break that thing's neck and you pour it all on his head, and, and do you know what that little room probably smelled like? And this woman is doing and worshiping Jesus at his feet. It was an extravagance. And so they said, why this waste? I want you to note this. What they call waste, Jesus calls a beautiful thing. Look up here for a moment. Whatever you do, whatever you give, whatever you show from your heart, uh, whatever you offer in worship to Jesus is never wasted. Give him anything, give him everything, give him your best. And that's what she did. It was no waste at all. And they're thinking, whoa, a lot of money. She's kind of, I don't know what she's doing. 
She's being super emotional, way, way extravagant, wasteful. That could have helped a lot of poor people. Now, Jesus is not against helping the poor. In fact, he had just, his last story was how the Gentile nations will be judged based on how they treat his brothers and sisters by doing, you know, caring for them and clothing them and visiting them in prison and, and so forth. So that is important to Jesus. But Jesus says there is a value even higher. Listen, there is a value higher than good deeds or good works. Apparently, in the kingdom of heaven, there is no higher good deed that a human being can do than to worship extravagantly their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the greatest, the highest, most spiritual good that you can do is to pour your heart out and give him everything within you to worship him for he is worthy. Amen? So here, I want you to look at this. Mary teaches the entire church what true worship is all about, being at the feet of Jesus. She did this at the feet of Jesus. She poured it on his head, but she ended up at his feet. Now, I want you to know this, that the, the woman here uh, is revealed to us as being Mary by one of the other gospels. Mary, whose sister was Martha and whose brother was Lazarus. Mary is found three times in the gospel, three stories in the gospels. All three times Mary is found at the feet of Jesus. The first time was when Jesus came into the house of Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary. And you remember that they had guests. And so Martha's in the kitchen and she's getting ready. We have the prophet here. And she's, you know, she looks at her sister, Mary, who's not helping her in the kitchen. And she's sitting in there at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. And finally she says, hey, I could use a little help in here. Loose translation of the original Hebrew. But anyway, <laughs> banging cupboards. And, and Jesus says, no, Martha, you are anxious about many things, but Mary has chosen the better part. She's at my feet. So Mary, the first time we meet her, is sitting at the feet of Jesus to learn his word. The second time we find Mary with Jesus is when her brother died. Jesus hears about it, but he stays away. By the time he arrives, it's day four. And so Martha comes running out. You, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But Mary runs out, and she falls again at the feet of Jesus. Oh, Lord, you alone have the power of life. And she was at his feet, and immediately Jesus goes to the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. From being at the feet of Jesus, the resurrection of her brother. And third time, the third time we meet Mary is here, where she breaks that thin little neck of the alabaster uh, flask, and she pours all that oil upon Jesus to worship him. Mary reveals pure worship. And worship is the highest good, highest deed you and I can do. She is found at his feet for her blessing. She is brought, uh, she is brought to him and to his feet all of her burdens. And finally, she is the one that gave her best at his feet. And I love this. She anointed his head and his hair, but as she washed his feet with her hair, the Bible says that a woman's hair is her glory. She was just taking the best of all that she had 
as a feminine woman made in the image of God, and she worshipped him, and she wiped his feet with that oil and fragrance and perfume, and it filled the house. I believe that that's what, um, and, and if I can just say this, this story of, of this radical, extravagant worship where Jesus said, oh, 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 this story is going to be heard and told around the world, was juxtaposed to the most horrific story of the crucifixion. If I may bring this final application to you and I, we, I, I believe we are living in radical times, extreme times. What we're seeing now is probably going to, these kind of things are going to keep rolling on. That's kind of what Jesus laid out until he comes. So how are we going to endure severe circumstances, radical reactions, people filled with anxiety and fear and freaking out? I think what this shows is what, here's how we can survive. Two days away from the cross, Mary said, I'm not only going to Jesus, I'm going to the feet of Jesus, and I'm going to worship Jesus. If I may say this, I believe the thing that will help believers survive the turbulent times and the chaos at present and ahead is that we need to go into whole new levels of adoration, of worship, of extravagance, unashamed, that we are lifting up and loving and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ Almighty. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.